I'm going to pray and we're going to read the scriptures here this morning. Jesus, thank you uh, once again for who you are, for what you've done in our hearts and lives, that you have made us new, that you have given us life and life abundantly. God, I pray that at Redeemer's Church, we continue to look at what it looks like to walk in that abundant life here and now, not just waiting for the kingdom to come, but the truth and the reality that your kingdom has come and the king coming and resurrected. So we give you praise, we give you thanks, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what we're going to do this morning is we, yes, are going to read all of Matthew chapter 18. This was one discourse, one teaching block that Jesus gave to his disciples. And uh, in any other uh, format or way in which we weren't trying to just cruise through this gospel, this could easily be broken down into multiple teachings. But there's also some incredibly valuable points when we pull back And we look at it from the 10,000 foot view and begin to understand what Jesus is getting at in this section of scripture. So hang with me, Matthew 18, follow along if you have a Bible. Verse one, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Genius guys. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world! For temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter in with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you with every charge that may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And finally, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. How noble of you, Peter, right? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one who was brought to him, he owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, forgave him his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of the fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pray what you, pay what you owe, saying his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that taking place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his servant delivered him to the jailer until he could pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Long section and honestly, typically gets broken up into several parts, but there's one idea, one theme that I want us to chew on, think through this morning, and it's that very familiar phrase that gets tossed around in Christianity, and it's that Jesus in this teaching is about the upside-down kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. What exactly is that? And that's what we're going to spend our morning unpacking. So let me just talk to you about what this looks like. As your pastor, I get to sit down with a lot of you. And one of the common questions I get when somebody is new to the church is, Pastor, or Brett, because that's what I go by around here, is this, we love the church. We want to be a part of the church. What can we do to serve the church? How can we participate? And if they ask me this and have not already preloaded it with, we don't want to do kids, I tell them, I want you to do kids. That's, that's where the help is, okay? That's, that's where we need so much. But what typically comes in this conversation is this idea of uh, we want to be a part of the community. And one of the ways we can be a part of the community is on Sundays, there's all these visible expressions of service that we can participate in. We see that there's needs, everything from filling up communion cups to making sure the sound is going or music is being played or psalms are read. And there's all of these ways that people say, we would love to serve in the church. And what's so intriguing is that in this section of scripture, Jesus is going to talk about how you become great in the kingdom of God. And it's interesting because he doesn't say, well, you sing on Sundays. He doesn't say, that you work on the observation team. He actually goes in a completely opposite direction, which is going to be an inward focus on, if you want to be great, you need to become a servant, a servant of all. And what this looks like is a little bit contrast to what we've been taught in evangelicalism. This idea of I show up on Sundays and I just simply give what I have of value and worth and then I call it good for the rest of the week. Now, hear me on this. Lest anybody who oversees ministries here gets a little frustrated with me. The volume on serving physically, actively participating, whether it's a Sunday morning or it's helping with a group or leading a community, 
That volume needs to stay absolutely turned up, loud and clear. Yes, we want you to serve in those ways. But there's this other realm that Jesus is discussing and talking about that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, this is what it actually looks like. And we need to begin to turn the volume up on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. For when they come to him in this question, they come to Jesus, and you have to get the picture. Peter, James, and John, they have just made their way down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Epic moment, yes, absolutely in the life of Jesus, for the three that were there, while those other disciples were down in the valley dealing with some demon-possessed kid throwing himself in the fire, and they couldn't cast it out, and they're walking down like this. Yeah, we were with Jesus on the mountain. We saw Moses. We saw Elijah. This was amazing. The father spoke, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus then comes down and he casts out that demon and they're making their way to Jerusalem at this time. And these disciples have the audacity to spark up this conversation on, who do you think's the greatest? Ah, Which one of us is going to be with him on his right and on his left? And in other gospels, like Mark, we tune into this reality that Jesus is listening into their conversation. Now, here's what we need to know. Is desiring greatness a bad desire? It's not. It's not. Jesus doesn't chastise them or ridicule them. He redefines for them what greatness actually is. He redefines for them. And how he redefines greatness is not even in terms of activity, but it's going to focus on identity. And that identity is going then to produce the activity of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And when we talk about identity and activity, what we immediately want to link is identity and busyness serving in the church. Busyness getting things done in the church that, yes, have to be done, but Jesus says, uh, no, no, no. Hold up a second. When I talk about identity and activity, I'm talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about not despising others. I'm talking about putting to death the very sin in your own life. See, there's four things that he acknowledges in this passage, this long section. And he says, if you want to be great in this discourse, that's the setup. Resist sin. You can see that in verses 7 through 9. Do not despise others. Be like the father who leaves the 99 for the lowly, the marginalized, the outcast. If, when, your brother sins against you, here's how you handle it. And this is what forgiveness looks like. This is kingdom-minded people this morning. Too many of us think kingdom-minded people is just the activity we participate in on Sunday morning. Kingdom-minded people have a whole new set of values that they, just, uh, they don't just live by on Sunday, but actually impacts their lives, reorders their lives throughout the rest of the week as well. Participating in this, and this is what it looks like. Easy outline for you. 
To be great in the kingdom of God, you have to realize that the relationship between yourself is not right. Jesus calls this out in them. If you want to be great, be humbled. Walk in humility like this child. A child is absolutely dependent upon their parents or the figure watching over them, making sure that they brush their teeth and eat and sleep and don't have too much sugar. They need you. Trust me, you're raising them. Good job, okay? You have to be humble. Not only is this talking about your relationship to yourself, but if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, your relationship towards others. Jesus gets into our lives and radically impacts what it looks like to associate with other people, whether they're followers of Jesus or not. He's going to redefine cultural norms of, maybe I should forgive them seven times, and that's pretty good, right, Jesus? No, 77 times are just this idea that you keep forgiving them until you lose track and you start all over once again. Then there's the relationship between you and God that has to be made right. The one in which acknowledges your absolute, complete dependence upon him, that because he forgave you, you now have this new ability, new capacity to love, forgive, and care for other people. And now there are so many ways, so many ways that this begins to play out in our lives. But let me ask you this. Today, if you were to just get out your pen and paper, what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to you to be great? And I want you to think about that for a second. And does it look like this excellent parent, success, achievement? All too often, we have aligned our values with what culture has told us consists of greatness. Success, power, wealth, fame. And there's plenty of ways to achieve all of those. TikTok will make you a star for being an idiot real quick. It just just has the capacity to do that. So does YouTube. The idea that I'm going to get power and have influence, whether it be even in my own local community or to a greater degree, people are going to then look at me and think, that person is wonderful. That person is great. They serve in public service. They take care of other people. Or somebody who is famous and they have influence because they tell you to do something, we believe them just because they starred in a movie. It's this ridiculous mentality that we've adopted in Western celebrityism in which we just simply listen to anything thrown down our way because somebody is popular. And we think, That's, that is greatness. And people crave greatness because they were created for a sense of greatness. We crave it because it brings purpose and value to our lives. But when it gets outside of God's kingdom values, when it becomes what rules our lives, when it's what society truly believes is significant, we end up chasing greatness down the wrong roads which deplete us, which are insufficient, which we seek to satisfy us, but they never will satisfy us. Now, think this through. When Adam and Eve were created, they were not created for mediocrity. What did God tell them? He told them together this biblical mandate. I want you to look at what I've done in the Garden of Eden. And I want you to go create, cultivate, make, use your imagination. I want to see you flourish. 
It was not, let's just kick it in the garden and sing songs together. But there's a mandate placed on their lives to go forth, to imitate, to image what God has done and take it to the world around them. This is the high calling that God has placed on humanity that we turned our backs on because we thought we could do it better in our own knowledge, determining for ourselves what is right or wrong. Adam and Eve had this desire to be great. The disciples have this desire to be great. He doesn't look at them, Jesus, in the story and say, you fools, only I can be great. No, he says, you have to become like this child. And if you wanted to, for sake of time, we won't go there, but you can look at Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, if you want to be great, you have to become a servant. Now, there's something really interesting about servants. I want you to think this through. Think about Jesus' day and age. Think about what was going on in their culture and when he uses this term and this idea of servanthood. A servant doesn't choose who they're going to serve. They just serve. They just serve. Let that sink in. That doesn't sit well in my shallow little world. It does not. And here's why. I like to serve as long as I have something coming back in return. Anybody else? I'm the only one. You guys are liars. They're a bunch of liars. I mean, your pastor is the biggest sinner in this church. I'm sure of it. I'm convinced of it. But let's, let's be honest. I like to serve if somehow, in some way, it's going to benefit me. Now listen, uplift me. It's going to establish a greater position or raise my position. Or somebody's going to owe me one. And the disciples, they kind of have this in their mind. Peter, James, and John feeling very privileged in that moment. In our world, we construct this idea. We serve those who will benefit us either by blessing us back. And if I buddy up with them, can we begin then to do business with one another? Or will they throw me business my way? If I serve them, can I get them then to come over to my house and use their skills to bless me? If I put in extra hours, and there's often this uncertainty spoken rule in our culture that I'll serve you, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. We also, if that's not an option, are more than willing to serve people if they then will just give us the credit, make us feel good about ourselves. Why is that? We as humans, whether you know it or not, are longing for a sense of righteousness, doing good works and doing good deeds because you have this embedded in your soul that something is missing and lacking and you crave rightness, rightness with God, rightness with humanity, rightness with the earth around us. And so we do things in order to get some sense of credit or feeling righteousness about ourselves. Deeply woven into our makeup is this longing, this desire, and it was shattered at the fall. And Jesus comes and says, do you want to be great, Redeemer's Church? Serve. Serve. And this is when I could go into a whole mantra of just, hey, serve downstairs and be here on the weekends. But not even Jesus does that. He defines serving in a very different way as he moves into forgiveness, as he moves into 
caring for the outcast, and looking at others. I want you to see how significant this is. Because if you're all about you and you put yourself first, Jesus is speaking directly into your life and he's trying to rescue you from self-destruction. He's trying to rescue you from your own pain and misery you're going to cause yourself by living for yourself. He says you're not going to find it in being great in the way in which the world defines greatness. So what do we do? Relationship with self. Jesus says, humble yourself. Do you know that you're needy? Do you know it? And I've become pretty self-sufficient. At least I think that in my own mind. I can make it in this world. I can handle everything that comes my way. There can become this mentality in which we're taught that we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we make it happen. And Jesus reverses that. And he says, you need to hear me on this. Unless you come like a child, we can't even begin to have this kingdom conversation. Then it moves into this idea of forgiveness. And until you realize you are needy, you're never going to be able to look at forgiveness in the right way. Understand that this morning. In order to properly view forgiveness, we have to properly view ourselves and see our own need. Otherwise, we're going to constantly put ourselves above somebody else. They're going to completely, entirely be indebted to us until they pay their debt off to us for whatever wrong they've caused in our lives. And we're going to hold that over them. And Jesus is saying, you need to reverse that here this morning. You need to see yourself clearly. Why? Well, there's a couple of things if we don't see ourselves clearly this morning. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, there's this root of bitterness, this unforgiving root that comes when we're unable to forgive other people. And it begins to twist us and distort us, causes us to look at ourselves as high and exalted and as somebody else as the sinner that needs to be changed. And it's incredibly easy to develop this mentality and this attitude, and we're told to watch, to look at ourselves. Now, as we move into this, first and foremost, see yourself as needy. It's that right relationship of understanding who you are. Then Jesus moves into, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, become a servant. This means then have eyes for other people. Well, what about when they wrong me? What are we going to do about that? And he begins to unpack this idea for each and every one of us. Anybody in here ever been wronged by somebody? Oh, good. Hands are going up. The sweat can be seen. It's disgusting. I get it. I know. I'll stop wearing light colors. All right. A lot of us choose to handle unforgiveness just on the surface level. Um, Right now, there's these portions of my lawn. They look super great because they're green and they're weeds. <laughs> and, and as long as they're growing high, nobody can really tell the difference. And it kind of blends in with the grass. But as I mow it over, you know, or chop it off, you can begin to see all the discoloring and disproportion and wrong spots. This is how a lot of us handle unforgiveness in our lives. We just sort of mow it over and call it good. We don't want to deal with it. And this morning, as we move into what this looks like to be a servant, it actually means to forgive and love other people. We have this uh, deliberate way in which we deal with our unforgiving hearts, and it's a way in which we just simply choose to ignore or mow over the weeds in our lives. 
Uh, what, what does this look like? Let me just give you some tangibles. If you can't forgive your parents in here, I mean, if you're a parent, you know you've let your kids down. If you're a kid, let me just tell you, your parents have probably let you down. And you've developed this spirit of unforgiveness in your life because somebody's failed you. They didn't go to your games. They didn't praise you. They didn't say, I love you enough. They hurt you physically. Whatever that might have been, you begin to develop this grudge if you're unable to forgive. And in family, you just simply kind of push it away. What you don't know is that it begins to distort you. It develops mistrust for other people in your life, and it changes you, and it robs you of joy if you can't enter into what it looks like to have a forgiving relationship. Jesus knows this, and Jesus knows the reality of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God is to be able to look at other people, yes, even other people who have hurt you and harmed you, and to see them, to truly see them and say, I am just as needy as them of God's grace. And I need to extend love and forgiveness to them the same way God has extended that to me. How does that play out? If you want to be great, forgive. Now, I don't know if you've heard this before, but when somebody wrongs you, they incur a debt to you. Just think about that for a moment. They build up some kind of penalty that's happened. And I'm going to this morning, not paint some rosy picture where I pretend forgiveness is easy because forgiveness is really hard. Forgiveness is really hard. But this morning, if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, there is a deep lesson for us to learn here this morning that we're going to focus the rest of our time on. Forgiveness is necessary, and Jesus talks about this even in his prayer there, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What does this mean or or what does this look like? A debt means something is owed. If you came to me and you borrowed a couple hundred dollars to go get groceries and I said, hey, this is a loan. I, I I, I need this money by the end of the month. I need to be paid back. You've incurred a debt from me. At the end of the month, you come to me and you're like, hey, Brett, um, thank you so much for the money. I'm not going to be paying you back. Okay. I have a couple of options in that moment. One, I can say, oh no, you are going to be paying me back and I'm gonna take you to small claims court over $200, really ridiculous. But that's what I'm going to do. We had this contract, I set it up. I can't handle that, I can't make it happen. The other thing I can do is I can absorb it. I can take the loss. I can look at you and go, you know what? I've got it covered, I'll handle it. Or I might say, I know you can't pay me back, but why don't you do some work for the debt that you've created in your life and you can work it off. The reality is there's a debt that's floating out there and somebody is going to have to pay that debt. When somebody sins against you, there is a transaction that has happened in your life. When somebody's hurt you, it may not be financially, it may be a wrong that has happened in your life and it's caused pain, it's caused loss of just time because you've been thinking about it, dwelling on it, that person comes up in your mind and all of a sudden you get angry and bitter and it impacts your marriage, your friendships, your relationships, any time that that person's name gets brought up. You see, when we wrong somebody, there is a transaction that's taken place in that moment, and we feel the weight of it, 
in terms of pain, suffering, loss, anxiety, angst, and you can go down the rest. And we feel then in that moment that somebody owes us something for that wrong because it costs trust, it costs pain and hurt, time thinking through, and this debt has happened. Let me give you a story in the Old Testament. There's two brothers. They were twins, Jacob and Esau. And there was this birthright that was given to the oldest. And he then sells it to his little brother for a cup of stew. And then later on, little brother who is a conniver, he actually steals the blessing from his older brother as well. Serious wrong has happened. Who's going to pay? Esau says, Jacob, you're going to pay. And he's not asking for Jacob to make it rain with more porridge, right? Get some more money. He says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Jacob has to leave his family. He never sees his parents again. He gets into this friendship with his uncle Laban that is disastrous. Oh, trust me, Jacob is pain. He may not have lost his life, but as time goes by, these brothers, they come back together. And as they meet, he is terrified, now wanting to give all of this stuff back to his older brother. And his older brother says, hey, in this situation, time has healed all wounds, except for we missed out on life together. Somebody always pays. When you're hurt, there's payment. What does this look like? Your boss hurts you. You yell back at him. Your spouse hurts you. You scream at him. Or that of my marriage, just a young 25-year-old would cause pain in the relationship. My wife wouldn't yell at me. She'd hide in the bathroom. Any other hiders in here? All right. Now, in her mind, she thinks I'm diffusing the situation. But in my mind, I'm thinking that's isolation. That's causing me then to suffer. That's bringing me pain because I want to deal with this problem in that moment. And it creates all sorts of anxiety and issues and problems. We become incredibly cold or we withdraw from people to the degree that we think if we just cut them out of our lives, I won't have to deal with it except for it's causing bitterness in our hearts. And this root is rising up. We have a problem in our culture. And it's one who does not face forgiveness well. We run we hide, we avoid, we cut out, we find a new church, we find a new community, we skip town, we get into new friendships. All the while, it's still festering to the point to where somebody's name gets brought up. There's just this pain that takes place and we cause hurt. Forgiveness is hard, redeemers. I share this story every so often and it's a painful one to share. But, but in my life, I didn't have a lot of that pain and suffering until I got engaged. And when I got engaged, we had some disruption in relationship with my wife's family. And there's a lot of hurt, and there was a lot of self-righteousness, and there's a lot of we're doing things the right way, and blame casting, and so on and so forth. And the sad reality is, is it caused such a tension that... Um, some family didn't show up to the wedding that we wished had showed up to the wedding. I mean, this had ongoing trauma in my life. You'd come over to our house, 
You wouldn't see wedding pictures up, not just because they were really terrible wedding pictures. <laughs> Don't get a free photographer, all right? Spring the money. <laughs> I hope Lloyd doesn't podcast this, Mom. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Honesty this morning. And it hurt. And for about 10 months, there wasn't relationship with my wife's family. And one night, I'm teaching at the Fellowship of Bend on a Wednesday night, and I'm teaching the uh, passage of Luke chapter 9, the sinful woman. And I teach on forgiveness that night. And I'm just like, it's so great, and I'm nailing the sermon, and whatever, and whatnot. And I come home, and my wife looks at me, and I will never forget sitting on the floor of our home, in the kitchen, leaning up against the oven. And she looks at me, and I won't repeat what she said, but I will say this. Every once in a while, an explicit might be okay to get somebody's attention. Because <laughs> she said, you're full of crap, but she said something else. Okay? Some of you are going to leave the church. That's fine. And, <laughs> and she says this to me, and in that moment, I am so angry that she said the S word. <laughs> How could you say that, you sinner? She says, you're full of crap, Brett. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, how can you teach on forgiveness when every time my parents' names get brought up, you take a jab, you take a shot. Deep down, she doesn't know it's worse and darker in in my heart than that. That There is so much pain and difficulty that I'm almost wishing for bad things to happen to them. You ever been there in a relationship? Well, let me tell you something. You can get what you wished for when you're 26 and hurt. And when you're sitting next to your mother-in-law who is dying and a family that's been ripped apart... You can see how wrong and broken and painful it absolutely was. See, I held bitterness in my heart and anger, and I put on a Christian front, and I'm like, I'm not looking at porn. I'm not ripping people off. I'm not a bad dude. When all the while, there's unforgiveness in my heart. And like, Paul uses the word excrement, which is a four-letter word in the Greek, just so you know. And my wife uses that same word to wake me up to reality. And I begin to, in my heart, say, I'm not going to make them pay anymore. No, the relationship is not where it's supposed to be right now. But I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to pay it down by speaking blessing when we talk about them by praying for them, by encouraging my wife. Over time, the relationship began to be mended, healed, whole, holding my mother-in-law's hand, praying with her there in the hospital and at hospice. And God did a work, and that may not be all your stories, but forgiveness began in my heart. And I don't tell emotional stories to evoke emotion in you. But I speak the truth when I tell you, if you have a wrong with somebody, somebody pays. You make them pay by isolating yourself, by talking bad about them, by bashing them, 
by in your heart just wishing and wanting the worst to happen. Or you pay by absorbing it, by taking it on yourself. That's how you begin to forgive. Because I know in this church there's deep wounds in your personal lives. And I get asked the question all the time, hey, Brett, how can I even begin to forgive somebody? It starts by absorbing it yourself. Well, how can we even do that? Isn't it incredible when you think about Jesus? What did he absorb on the cross? Your pain, your suffering, your wrongdoing. He didn't come and live and say, live like me and do like me, and then you'll obtain to be what I am. He actually himself absorbed the wrongdoing, absorbed the hurt, absorbed the pain, took that on himself, having no guilt at all, in order to invite us into relationship. And this morning is serious because unforgiveness is going to wreck you personally and all your relationships around you. If you want to learn to forgive, there's a few things and then we'll enter into a time of just reflecting and worshiping the Lord and this idea of absorbing it and taking it on yourself. When it comes to forgiveness, what should we forgive? A genuine debt. Forgiveness is a generous release of a genuine debt. That's Miroslav Volf. Forgiveness is a generous release of a genuine debt. We should expect forgiveness to be costly. Because what it cost me in that moment was to not only have to make right relationship with family, but also there with my wife, who is the closest now, newest family in my, my life, it would cost me pride, the ability to say I was right, you were wrong. It would cost people questioning, going, wait, didn't they hurt you and now you're hanging out with them? How could you just forgive something like that? And it'd be so easy to be like, yeah, they're real jerks, but I'm gonna take the higher road here. Gosh, cost you something forgive. Forgiveness might be free, but it's not cheap. Forgiving generously. We should forgive before the wrongdoer even repents. We should forgive even if it doesn't end in reconciliation. One, to forgive. Two, to reconcile. The chasm of reconciliation might be too wide for some relationships or somebody might not want to reconcile, but that doesn't mean they can rob you of the ability to love them and forgive them. The end result of forgiveness is freeing, liberating. And Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to forgive. In fact, I would prefer at this church, if there's any roots of bitterness, that you stop whatever service you're doing at our church that is physical, outward, and seeable. And I would ask you to do the inward work of forgiveness on your heart. That God would move on you and that because he has freely forgiven you, you can freely forgive someone else because Christ has paid it all. So I'm gonna leave you with three, five questions. I had three, I have five now. Five questions. Justin, you can come on back up here. I could have talked on this a lot longer, but I think you get the point. Forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive? Freedom to pull out your phone if it's not already. Write down the list. Write down the list.
Some of you need to go pretty far back. Pretty far back. And as Pete Scazzaro says, sometimes we need to go back like a bow and arrow to go forward, to propel, to move into the future. Some of you have thought, oh, I forgave them. No, you've ignored them. No, you've just kind of cut down the weeds and blended it in. You've actually not assessed the pain, racked it up, considered it's a real debt, and then been able to call that out in your own heart, your own life to God and say, this person abused me, this person wronged me. Some of us have never spoken those words on our lips and called out the wrongdoing. That is essential in moving forward. We're to call out the sin whether the brother or sister will hear it or not, for going to honestly, honestly move forward. It cannot be this vague. You do not sin in generalities. You do not have wrongs done to you in generalities. They're done in specifics. Therefore, we do not confess or we do not admit wrongs in generalities. We admit, confess them in specifics. This person hurt me, Lord, and wronged me. And I need to forgive Who do you need to forgive? What are you going to get out of not forgiving or forgiving? When I didn't forgive family, it made me feel good that I was right and I thought they were wrong. It made me proud. Oh, yeah, we got it down. We're in our 20s. We're right. Listen, what are you getting by not forgiving? What will you get out of forgiving? What are you risking if you will forgive somebody? If you are a servant and not your own, what sins, wrongdoings do you yourself need to lay down today? And finally, how does knowing that our Heavenly Father has forgiven us help bring rest and peace into your current situation? Church, I'm going to leave us in this moment. We're going to sing this song. And then normally what we do is we go into a time of communion and then a song. But I hope it's not too much of a wrench. We're going to sing both songs together. Uh, and then we're going to close out with communion because I want you to do some work before you take communion. I want you to actually process this. Think it through. And if I'm going to come as a follower of Jesus and participate in the body and the cup and in unity and in fellowship... Do I have an unforgiving, bitter heart in any way that I actually need to ask God to move in? That I need to ask God to do some work in my life. His grace is the only prerequisite for coming to the table. His goodness, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his doing. We come as children as we enter into the kingdom of God, right? It's because of him that we can then live as kingdom people. And kingdom people, they forgive, they serve, they see the marginalized. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness. May we respond adequately. May my heart not be the only heart that feels the heaviness of unforgiveness. May there be a release this morning and a movement in this church where there is wrongs admitted and there's apologies accepted and there's moving forward because in Jesus we can look at the wrongdoings that have happened to us and we can look at our own wrongs that we have caused and we can know that there's ultimate forgiveness in you which has freed us to forgive others. May we not be like that wicked servant who has forgiven you then in prison.
imprisoned another. But may we be those who, because we have been freely forgiven, freely